Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today, you're listening to... Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum. And Sarah Nixon, Public Programmer at the St. Catharines Museum. We're recording today's podcast at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre, which we acknowledge is part of the traditional territory of the Neutrals, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe peoples and their allies, and is adjacent to the Six Nations of the Grand River. We have a pretty interesting podcast for you today. Adrian, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what's on deck for this episode? Thanks, Sarah. Today's podcast episode is about Holodomor, the Ukrainian genocide that happened in the 1930s in Soviet-occupied Ukraine. Last year, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress put together a traveling exhibit about Holodomor that toured the country and stopped in here at the museum. It was that big bus, um, it's sort of like a big, uh, I don't know, like an RV bus that had a bunch of uh, really cool traveling exhibit inside. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, Natalie Duduk uh, contacted us about hosting pieces of the traveling ex- exhibition um, here at the museum as sort of a semi-permanent uh, temporary exhibit. The exhibit will open uh, April 4th to mark International Genocide Awareness Month and will run until the end of November, which is the last, uh, which the last Sunday in November is marked as Holodomor Remembrance Day. Wow, I think this is such a good opportunity for the community to learn a little bit more about Holodomor, especially for those who might not have heard anything about it. Absolutely, that's right. It hasn't really been a major topic of research, study, or even teaching. Um, in fact, it wasn't really talked about by governments until the late 1980s. And so for the Congress, the uh, Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, and for other organizations, it's been slowly developing uh, educational campaigns to help people find out more. Um, There is still work being done to find out more concrete information about the events that led to Holodomor, and even to really nail down a a concrete number of how many people uh, died or were uh, impacted or victims of, uh, of the genocide. I think the interview that I've done with Natalie will help people to learn about the events, um, but also hear some, I think what's really important is to hear some really personal family history, which will hopefully give people an appreciation of what Ukrainians uh, who were victims had to go through uh, to survive. Wow, absolutely. Well, I think that's a good segue then to getting into the interview. So uh, let's get right to it. I will say that my discussion with Natalie is not graphic. Um, But some of the stories that we talked about are pretty heavy, so I just want to give our audience a heads up that the material we cover might be difficult for some to listen to. Thank you for that. Let's get to the interview. Thank you very much for joining me, everyone. I'm joined by Natalie Duduk. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Holodomor. And uh, Natalie, why don't we get started by, why don't you tell me about your, um, your involvement with the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress? Yes, well, thank you very much, Adrian. So the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, uh, just like it sounds, is a national organization of uh, the Ukrainian diaspora. Uh, meaning those who are Canadian, but uh, still, of course, recognize their Ukrainian heritage. And so we have chapters across the whole country, and uh, I'm here as a a 
a member of the Niagara chapter. Wonderful. That's great. Um, so for our audience who may need a little bit of a refresher or even an introduction to uh, Hala Damore, can you tell us a little bit about what Hala Damore is? Absolutely. Well, it's, uh, I think the most, the first thing we, I have to say is that uh, in recognition of the fact that we're opening our Hala Damore exhibit here at Lock 3 in April, it was a genocide. Uh, and, uh, horrific genocide just like Rwanda, Armenia, uh, the, the Holocaust. I mean, these were all atrocious acts, probably. When you think uh, war is awful, people die in war, well, in genocide it's, it's even worse because this is innocence. So the, to understand the Holodomor, one needs to um, look back in history a little bit. Ukraine has often been referred to um, internationally as the breadbasket of Europe. And because of that, uh, she has um, a history fraught with occupation, whether it was uh, Poland or Austro-Hungary or uh, Russia. Well, Russia was basically the champion <laughs> occupier. So it was uh, no surprise then uh, when uh, the communists overthrew the Tsarist uh, monarchy in 1917-18, Lenin, um, Ukraine right away uh, took advantage of that and declared her independence, which was short-lived. Um, Ukraine actually was forced into the Soviet Union in 1922, not happily, not happily at all. In fact, from the 20s to the 30s, um, the Soviets uh, undertook uh, what they called a new economic policy which meant that this was the um, preview to collectivization. So this was the whole Soviet communist movement that uh, there are no more lords or individual landowners. Now it's all, everybody is, every, everything belongs to everyone. Okay. So the Ukrainian farmers who had their own landholds, as you can well imagine, <laughs> didn't all cotton on to this idea. Yeah. And uh, there was, there were boycotts and sabotages and so on. So uh, Stalin, uh, in uh, as early as 1930, we are now finding documents that the thought of a genocide by famine was already entertained. But it was fully instituted in 1932. Was there a famine? First of all, that's the most important thing because, right. of course, the Soviet Union was very good in manipulating the press and so on. And mm. um, so uh, they would say that there was a famine and malnutrition and this and that. But there was no famine. In fact, the Soviet government uh, exported uh, 1.7 million tons of grain in 1932, 1.68 million tons of grain in 1933. So it was a good year, <laughs> or two good years. Um, again, breadbasket of Europe. I mean, there's no, uh, no reason for a famine in Ukraine. So what they did is to, under the guise of forcing collectivization with these unrepentant landowners called, who they called kulaks, um, they basically would blacklist villages. That's how it started. 
and uh, a village that was blacklisted would be surrounded by the military and then they would come in and they would seize everything. And when I say everything, uh, my mom, who was eight years old at the time, uh, recalled when uh, they came. They were the NKV NKVD, that was the police, if you will, that uh, came in and uh, absolutely took everything, every single grain. Um, by that time, people were burying bags of grain too, you know, right. so they had these special long poles that they would poke through the ground. Um, wow. That's how it all started. Um, there was even a law that was introduced of five grains. So if you were caught plucking grains from a collectivized farm, uh, you could be shot, imprisoned, and so on. And so a quarter of the Ukrainian population died wow. through famine. What, what um, did, uh, what's a quarter of the population, like in terms of uh, a number? Uh, in terms of numbers, we know that it's millions. Wow. Uh, because the archives were destroyed, all birth registries uh, in eastern and central Ukraine where the famine was concentrated, they were actively destroyed by wow. the Soviet regime. So uh, we are still, Ukraine is still in the process of reconstructing and coming up with a firm figure, but it has varied over the years from 3 million to 10 million. Wow. So uh, I'm sure there will be soon um, a firmer number right. that will come up through the abilities that we have nowadays to reconstruct demographics and so on. Right. But uh, it was certainly uh, millions. We have stories um, and I heard this story from my mother my whole life. She was able to talk about it. Many people who lived through it, survivors were not and are not able to talk about it. My mom actually um, was published um, mm. in, in a book here that you see and also um, The Standard did a nice interview a couple of years back. So the world started to cotton on to the Holodomor uh, basically in 1988. There was a U.S. Commission on the Ukrainian Famine and it determined that Holodomor was indeed an act of genocide. And, um, and then the Canadian government got involved with um, Bill 369, I believe it is. Mm. And uh, this is where uh, Canada and, of course, the rest of the world um, most countries do recognize that this, in fact, was not a, a normal famine. It was an act of genocide. Right. Aside from the genocide part of it, um, what has the impact been, what has the impact of Holodomor been on the Ukrainian community at the time for the people who survived and maybe even today? Mm -hmm. Well, those who survived, of course, this was uh, just before the Second World War. So many of them, especially from central and eastern Ukraine, were soon uh, caught up in <laughs> the m machinations of the Nazis. Right. My mother being an, uh, uh, one example. So when she was a teenager, she was forced under gunpoint uh, in the last days of the war onto a train with thousands of teenagers like herself to be brought back to Germany to work as slave labor. Oh my goodness. Because at the end of the war, of course, the Germans were losing and they took to the front young boys and old men, so there was no one to work their farms. Right. 
So, um, and then from there, of course, uh, they came to Canada. They were displaced persons uh, when the Allies came. And uh, so the story, uh, again, as I say, didn't really, most people were just trying to make a life for themselves, I'd say, in the, in, you know, after the Second World War. And it was only really in the late 70s and 80s that we realized we need to talk about this. Much like uh, the Jewish population with the Holocaust, it wasn't an immediate uh, outcry. Although, uh, when it was happening, uh, there were countries that did react. There were correspondents that did go in and they did see the, the atrocities and tried to report to the League of Nations, to the Red Cross and so on. But again, nothing was able to happen during those 32, 33. Mm. I found it really interesting too, you mentioned the Ukrainian population coming to different countries mm -hmm. and that some of my research revealed that, which is not difficult to find, but um, that Canada has the largest Ukrainian community outside of Europe. Yeah. Um, I found that really interesting and I, I, I know a little bit about um, immigration at that time period and that the Ukrainian community was one of the biggest communities to arrive in Canada at the yes. time, yeah. but I wonder what I wonder what drew them here? Well, in the case of my parents, it was because uh, my dad said he had an uncle who had immigrated to a place called Canada. Right. Um, many Ukrainians after the Second World War moved to Brazil, Argentina, the U.S. Um, but Canada, of course, remains actually with the fourth wave of immigration that is happening today. Yeah. Uh, uh, a wonderful, well, and of course, we as proud Canadians know why yeah. <laughs> it's the best country in the world. <laughs> so, of course, Very good. yes. So, you talked a little bit about your mother and how your mother uh, was actually a um, survivor of Holodomor. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, more about her story and then your connection to the whole, the whole big picture? Sure. Um, well, her story um, is a sad one. I mean, uh, she's, she survived the Holodomor when she was eight years old. Uh, why? Because her father, who was the village... Blacksmith? Blacksmith, thank oh, you very, very much. Yeah, yeah. People who... So uh, they had a little bit of means, obviously, so they were targeted by the Soviet government. So he escaped from arrest. He knew he was going to be arrested, as many other... Uh, teachers, priests, um, all the intellectuals. This was again part of the Soviet uh, regime's um, way of trying to tamp down uh, Ukrainian nationalism right. and getting Ukrainians to obey, basically. Right. Uh, so because he was away from the house, he was able to sneak in at night. And because he, uh, with a few, you know, a, f a potato or a few grains, and he also built uh, by hand, being a blacksmith, a mini mill, okay, where, where those grains could be ground. And so my mom and my grandmother actually helped their neighbors too. Like if they oh. found a few grains of whatever that needed to be ground, they did that. And uh, that's basically how they survived. Finally, my grandmother uh, was forced to work on the collectivized farm um, and uh, how they did that, how they 
basically conquered her spirit was that they forced her to uh, collect corpses. Oh uh, and uh, my mom remembers that and uh, speaks of this story uh, very poignantly, saying uh, her mom was afraid of death in general and dead people, and uh, it was her and a man who had to do this, and uh, she, she couldn't do it at all. So fortunately, he was compassionate, and he handled that horrific task himself. But that finally broke my grandmother's spirit. She joined the collective, and, and uh, that's what happened then. Yeah. So how did your mother escape, or did your, your family escape? And well, it, uh, my mom, no, oh, her, right. her, yeah, yeah, the Germans came and took her away, right. so she had no choice from that perspective, although she thought she was coming back because the Germans, although it was under gunpoint, uh, they, they reassured the young people saying, no, 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 you're just gonna work for three months and then you're gonna come back home. Wow. So that's how they got people to, um, but no, she saw mothers running after their children and being shot where they stood and stuff like that. So, yeah. But I have to tell you a lovely thing. In um, After 35 years of uh, being in Canada, I actually witnessed my mom seeing her mom for the first time. No, wow. Yes, it was such... It was the first time I actually saw my mom as someone's child. Wow. It was a wonderful reunion. Wow. Um... And so how did, how did your mother, um, so after the war, mm -hmm. she, she came to, directly to Canada or? Directly to Canada okay. under a sponsorship. Wow. This is how, uh, how it worked in those days. Uh, displaced persons uh, received contracts from their sponsoring countries. So my mom and dad uh, came to Montreal under a contract with Joseph Elie. He's uh, an oil magnate, if you will. Okay. And they worked as domestics for a year to work off their contract and then began their lives in wow. Canada. Wow. Wow. The, there's just, there's so much to your story. And I imagine that a lot of other survivors and their children and grandchildren have, you know, similar um, amazing stories that we can hear a little bit more about in the exhibit. Yes. Um, and some of the other education efforts uh, that go on. That, what an incredible uh, story that... For someone like me, uh, I've had no experience or exposure to, and um, I'm just sitting here, <laughs> like listening to you tell this story. It's just, it's quite moving. Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the education efforts, uh, some of the education mm. efforts that are being undertaken by the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. Thank you very much. Um, well, we have been successful in instituting the Holodomor in secondary school curriculum. Oh, great. Uh, throughout Canada, in uh, mostly the prairie provinces have done very well uh, in instituting it uh, in uh, Ontario as well. Uh, Montreal uh, has it uh, also in French. They've done a lot of work uh, from that perspective. Um, the Holodomor bus, which uh, mm -hmm. was here in Lock 3 and hopefully will come <laughs> again, has been very instrumental. And um, there is a Ukrainian-Canadian Research and Documentation Center, actually. They have a lovely website and they're situated in Toronto. They have uh, done a, a lot of work and we have a lot of publications now mm -hmm. uh, that are available. And um, 
The uh, Ukrainian-Canadian Congress actually is, is uh, an international organization. So it's the World Congress of Free Ukrainians. Okay. So we are collaborating always together. So this year, being the 85th anniversary of Holodomor, we are having discussions as to how to commemorate worldwide uh, uh, this particular anniversary. Right. Yeah. Um, what kind of memorials and remembrance exists for Holodomor? Mm -hmm. uh, well, you may have seen on, on TV, it's been televised that uh, in Toronto on the CNE grounds, there will be a statue, a memorial uh, that will be opening this year. So that's uh, an important one. Uh, there are monuments that exist throughout the world, certainly in Canada, uh, within the other provinces, dedicated to uh, Holodomor. And uh, actually, we're working here in Niagara as well to uh, have um, a monument or a memorial also uh, placed uh, this year. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, what can people expect when they come and see the exhibit that's coming to the museum uh, in April? Right. Well, I think what they're going to see is um, a stirring, moving uh, exhibit. Um, we have um, collaborated with our uh, exhibit designers to ensure that it isn't just an educational experience, but truly an experiential um, experience so that people will uh, be able to appreciate um, the tragedy uh, and know that in, in any case genocide must be recognized because it can happen again. History can repeat itself mm -hmm. and it's only by um, learning about our history we feel that we can all be made truly aware of the extent that um, political decision-making can have when, you know, communists believed they were doing a good thing, right? Uh, Marx thought he was doing a good thing. But uh, this is where people have to always uh, be vigilant. That's great. Well, thank you very, very, very much for coming in to speak about uh, Holodomor and the exhibit and Remembrance. Um, and even your personal family story. I really, really appreciate that, and I think our listeners appreciate that as well. Um, if you'd like to catch the exhibit, it will be up uh, here at the museum. Um, we put it up, what, April 2nd, 3rd? 3rd. 3rd, April 3rd. Uh, so it'll be up from early April all the way until the end of November, and mm -hmm. there's a little bit of significance behind those dates, um, one being that April is uh, Genocide Awareness Month, and then uh, no the last Saturday, I believe, in November, or the late November, is there a date? I can't remember. Uh, it, I believe it's going to be November 24 or 25. Uh, but uh, what we have, um, there is uh, an international Holodomor Day right. uh, that was actually instituted uh, by the U.S. Commission and then in Canada as well, and it's uh, considered to be the fourth Sunday of every November. Okay, so mm -hmm. right to the end of November, yeah. um, and that way um, hopefully we can contribute a little bit to the awareness and to the, to the study and, and, and the research and the storytelling of this uh, really important story. Thank you so much for coming in, Natalie. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Adrian.
not really sure what to say. Absolutely. And I had sort of the same reaction after chatting with Natalie. Um, and speaking with her after the interview, she definitely empathized with me since she shares these stories with so many people who are hearing them for hearing them and for and processing them for the first time. I think the value in having heard these stories is, as she said, to educate, to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again in the future. Absolutely. It's a very similar discussion with so many of the other genocides from the 20th century. Sort of one thing to know about the history, but it's another thing entirely to contribute to making sure it doesn't happen again. Um, additionally, it's important to Canadian history, I think, as, uh, as it is to Ukrainian and European history, because so many of the survivors, including Natalie's parents, came to live here in Canada following Holodomor and the Second World War. So it's a really, it's a, it's a big part of our society and it's a, a big part of our community here in Niagara. And their shared history is a part of our national story. So it's important that we work together to educate people and help people to appreciate the horrors that the people who are now our neighbors and our community members had to go through. Wow. What a great message for International Genocide Awareness Month. So Adrian, when can people come and see the exhibition? So as I mentioned at the end of the interview with, uh, with Natalie, the exhibition is going to run from April 4th to the end of November and will be on display on the second floor in the Lockview Lounge here at the museum. The lead historian, actually from the main Holodomor Research Center in Kiev, Ukraine, will be here speaking about Holodomor on May 1st as a keynote speaker for the official opening of the exhibit. So that's kind of really, really cool. So I would definitely say try to make it out uh, May 1st for that. And our listeners can find out more about the event on May 1st from our social media and our website as details are released. Wow, thank you so much for sitting down with Natalie and bringing this super important story to our podcast and the museum. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I should really pass the thanks along and the credit along to Natalie and the other members of the Niagara chapter of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, as they are really the driving force behind Holodomor education in our community. To find out more about some of the research and other stories Natalie mentioned in the interview, you can check out the footnotes to this episode at our blog, stcatherinesmuseumblog.com. And to find out more about the exhibition and the May 1st event, keep an eye on our social media and website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca. That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. This podcast was produced by Adrian Petrie and Sarah Nixon. With special thanks to Natalie Dudeau for sharing her story. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Wellington Health Center and the City of St. Catharines.